0: Hi, and welcome back to the Amps Podcast. My name's Owen Peters.
1: And I'm Owen Shirley. And you find us right now stood on the edge of the Severn Estuary, which is a short drive from our hometown of Bristol. And we've come out here primarily to introduce this episode of the podcast, which we'll discuss further in due course. But also we've come to this exposed location to demonstrate the capabilities of the Bubblebee Industries Windkiller SE, um, which we are currently using to record on my Tascam DR100 Mark III.
0: Yeah, it's a great little windshield solution for handheld recorders. um, Really small and well-built, straps on really tight and is designed exactly for this kind of recorder and doing a great job of keeping the wind off the microphones at this really exposed location. Um, So we thought the best way to introduce this episode, which is focused on the sound of the film's sensor,
1: yeah, we recently uh, met up with the principal sound team, or post-production sound team of Censor. The three of them met us via Zoom uh, recently uh, to discuss this film, which is a debut feature film from British director Prino Bailey-Bond. It's already making waves on the film circuit, the, the festival circuit, and has been already nominated for some awards, Owen.
0: Yeah, so it's recently nominated for a British Independent Film Award under the category of Best Sound. So, congratulations to the whole team for that, to Tim, Adele and Michelle. But also um, to the Foley team at Twickenham, which includes Adam Mendez, Sue Harding and Ollie Ferris, and the assistant sound designer Felix Wavely Hudson.
1: So I'll hand you over to Owen now, who began by asking them each to introduce themselves.
0: We have with us sound designer and supervising sound editor Tim Harrison. So welcome Tim. Thank you. Uh, supervising dialogue editor Adele Fletcher. Hi, Adele. Hello. And supervising ADR editor, Michelle Woods. Hi. Hi, Michelle. Hello. So uh, we all gathered to talk about Sensor, which came out very recently. Um, and I've read a lot about in Sight and Sound and around the Guardians, film articles and everything, been a really successful film and a really interesting film for sound. So, yeah, just be great that you're all here to tell us all about the process of building a soundtrack for a horror, which is centered around a very specific era in horror and VHS aesthetics like Sensor is. So I guess an opening question really is just that being that it is a film fixated on video nasties and VHS and films with kind of iffy sound quality, uh, did that factor into the aesthetic of trying to design sound for Sensor in any way? Uh,
2: yeah, yeah, Tim absolutely. only hired iffy people. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's all in the crewing. Um, yeah, so um, I mean, Prano and I, the director Prano Bailey Bond and I, had worked on um, a short film about um, I think it's 2013. It came out called Nasty, okay, which was if you like a kind of short um, short film version. I think it's actually being um, packaged with um, the Blu-ray release, so there'd be kind of a chance to compare and contrast, and it actually shares some footage um, with Sensor. So we, in a kind of short form, we'd had a chance to develop the aesthetic a little bit. And on Nasty, we did lots of stuff like dub stuff to VHS, kind of unspool it, scrunch it up, soak it in water, re-spool it, kind of re-record it. Um, mm. So we, we were always quite interested in that kind of material, analogue approach um, to VHS. And um, and what one of the central ideas of um, Sensor... Um, Is that, you know, as Enid, the central character, loses her kind of grip on reality in kind of dealing with this childhood trauma through with this kind of sort of savior complex. She's trying to protect the the world from all these horrible films. But in the end, it's kind of her that comes undone. That's not really a spoiler. It's kind of clear in the trailer. But Hmm. um, so we wanted to kind of shift the sound from. Uh, when we're kind of in in reality, and Enid's kind of got some semblance of of, of kind of uh, a, a, an intact psyche, we'd have quite a, a naturalistic sort of more digital aesthetic. Mm. And then as um, she starts to lose the plot, the aspect ratio of the film starts to shift to four three uh, from widescreen, and we start to kind of get the sense that the film itself is kind of unspooling, and we're kind of going into um, a sort of a video nasty. And so as we go through the film, um, the aesthetic and the processes that we use become much more analogue and much more kind of saturated and much more kind of material. So absolutely, that was something that we kind of talked about from the early days, this kind of gentle shift that ramps up at the end from a kind of clean digital sound to a really kind of dirty analogue one.
0: I'm guessing there's a lot of aspects and knock-ons for that with the dialogue as well, that you've got characters in the real world and then we've got some fictional video nasties, right, there amongst real ones which I guess had to be kind of recreated. And then you've got that element of shifting into a video nasty as well, where you've got kind of literally larger than life characters all interacting the same thing. So what was it like Adele and, and Michelle to some extent with, with the dialogue and the ADR working with that aesthetic in mind? Did that influence the way you'd kind of approach it at all?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I would say I concentrated more on the actual sync sound and Tim did an amazing job creating the video nasty world from scratch. Um, So I think I was really trying to focus on getting the location sound up to scratch, so to speak, because some of it was a bit iffy. And there was quite a lot of extra ADR that we needed to get it to a, a good sort of starting place so we queued quite a lot for there was some sort of ADR things that came in from Prana wasn't there Michelle of of sort of performance notes Mm -hmm. and things and but we just did a lot of work collaborating all together trying to decide what we needed to cover what was good for sync what we needed to cover in ADR and and what we could sort of hand over to Tim to help him as well in sort of the archive aspect of things and the video nasties of things but it was quite a big job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can imagine.
4: I mean, I think the ADR was just more of an enhancement. I mean, obviously it was, there were a few performance notes and then some bad sounding bits. And then there was also um, the element of breaths and screams and all of those lovely things. And Prana was really into getting lots and lots of breathing, which was fabulous. Mm. And, you know, she was actually quite for the ADR situation, as opposed to some people who are a little bit trepidatious when it comes to ADR, but for her, it was like every scene she wanted breaths and the, those those that feeling of being really intimate and close with the characters. And I think that was a really important thing that she wanted to get across. I think to be really inside Neve's head or you know, to sort of get really into the into the story, into the into the character.
0: Do you find that's a quite a rare thing, Michelle? Then you spend a lot of time in ADR doing something so intimate?
4: Um, I think people are becoming a little bit more used to doing it, but there was a while there where, you, you know, you'd put down breaths and they'd be like, and they'd laugh, and they'd go, why would we need that? But actually, it's, it doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be throughout the entire scene, but it'll be little points that come through that, that just kind of help, especially on a close-up. You know, you can feel like you're really with the character. If it's done well, it's, it's, there's just that intimacy that you don't get. Sadly, on location, sound all the you know all the time. So it's uh, I think people are starting to realize that it gives it an an extra layer, another texture to the to the whole sound design, really. And then I'm sure then Tim can take it and really play with it.
1: And when were you guys working? When did post start on this film? Was this is this during COVID? Is this last year?
3: Yeah. So the the shoot was autumn of twenty nineteen, mm-hmm. um, and then the offline started kind of in in tandem with that. The offline edit, and then and we were quite involved. I mean, even before the the offline started, I mean, we'd made a whole library of kind of video nasty soundtracks mm. from from script. So we started. Um, Prano sent me the script. I think it was early twenty eighteen. Uh, and she's very clued up with sound and, you know, her and her writing partner, Anthony Fletcher, had, had written a lot of sound into the script. So there was a lot of stuff we could talk about um, before um, they'd even signed off the kind of shooting script. And based on off of that, that version of the script, I cre- uh, created with my collaborators um, at my company, Ometa, um, a kind of a set of 30... Sort of one to two minute long, um, sort of imagined video nasty scenes, kind of invented stuff. So we kind of did recorded dialogue. It was kind of a crazy night where we sort of scare the neighbours by screaming uh, to high heaven uh, in White in Whitechapel, of course, Jack, Jack the Ripper territory. So I guess, I guess they, they're used to it. Um, and then uh, I also made some music using a lot of vintage kind of eighties kit and working with various um, kind of musical collaborators and added sound effects. So kind of, but they went into the offline um, with this kind of library of, of sort of imagined uh, video nasties alongside a, a kind of a library of atmospheric stuff and sort of the non-diegetic stuff we'd prepped for Mark Towns, uh, the editor, who's also really, really great at working with sound. Mm. So by the time, so he was able to kind of work with the layers that we had. And then we had uh, the composer, uh, Emily levenez Farouche, who came on during, sort of towards the end of the edit. And kind of her demos started to kind of really bring it to life so that was kind of through sort end of 2019 early 2020 but then they, they they decided they needed pickups and they hadn't there was they hadn't quite finished principal photography when they'd had to wrap the initial shoot and unfortunately due to um, some delays with the execs, they just fell into their 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 pickup start date was the first week of lockdown. Oh. They'd been meaning to go out the week before, and whether they would have actually finished, it, yeah, they, they they possibly would have wrapped. So we had this kind of long time over the summer, sort of um, spring summer twenty twenty, when we were locked down, and there was you know there was a chance to do a bit more work with the offline, and Prana had more of a chance to think about kind of where she wanted to take things from there, particularly with sort of yeah edit and sound. And then the pickups came sort of end of summer uh, 2020 and we kind of locked at the yeah, start of autumn. So it was very much, um, we were sort of between the two lockdowns for the um, for the kind of start, the, the sort of editorial phase. But then there was still obviously a lot of COVID protocols. And then by the time we'd finished the mix, we'd gone into the kind of um, the, the sort of tiered process, which became sort of slightly challenging. But I know particularly, M- Michelle, there was lots of... Um, Lots of stuff to deal with in the ADR session around um, actors and, and, and how you were kind of positioned in the space.
4: Yeah, so I was um, at Art for Noise and Nick cleverly set up a separate room for me downstairs. It was actually the first time I'd gone into Soho because um, this was August last year. And um, he did have a separate room for me. Um, so I was connected with Source Connect and everything. And Prano actually um, sat in the room with the actors wearing masks Actually, that was a really good thing because originally she was going to be downstairs with me, but it was actually better that she was with the actors. Um, I think that made such a difference, a huge difference, actually, because mm. I've really noticed how important it is to be in the same room with the director, or at least the actor being in the same room um, as the director or myself. But uh, so that was a real bonus. At least we were able to do that. Um, so, yeah, it was it was tricky, but we, we managed to get some really, really good ADR, I thought.
0: You've all kind of touched on how particular Pran or Bailey Bond is about the sound for this film from like script, ADR right through. So what in what way was she particularly keen on it? What, what were her focuses for the soundtrack?
3: So a lot of the stuff at script stage was around transitions. So there okay. were a lot of kind of interscene transitions which were sort of carried by the sound. So there's there's a moment where we are going from Enid in the present day in, into a memory of kind of dealing with the trauma of her sister going missing, which is kind of the the, the sort of the, the, the drama in her past that kind of comes out early on in the film. The adult Enya gets a phone call and Prana wanted it to kind of transition into a scream of, of either her young sort of self or her, her mother kind of dealing with the aftermath of, of the younger sister going missing. And so we kind of talked a lot about things like this. And and there was a lot of motifs like Prano, you know, as with as with Nasty, there was a lot of uh, the short film, there was a lot of st- static and wind written into the script. So there was kind of steers on sound motifs that we could pick up. Mm-hmm. And then you had the big kind of motif of of the kind of wind chime, which is a trigger for memories and sort of comes in various ways through flashbacks and, and kind of dreams and hallucinations. So there was a lot of kind of chat early on about things like, well, we're kind of, you know, we're dealing with a certain amount of horror cliche here. And how do we kind of do something interesting with it? And so one of the things we did early on was think about how we could approach those kinds of sounds in a way that was maybe not the the most obvious way. So you kind of acknowledge the cliche and it kind of does what it needs to to kind of be part of that kind of video nasty world. But you can create something a bit more evocative with it. So for the wind chimes, I mean, we experimented with buying wind chimes and kind of building our own. And then we decided we'd try um, working with scaffolding pipes to build a kind of giant wind chime. We got all these uh, poles from a scrap yard and kind of rigged them off the studio ceiling and then kind of, you know, with an angle grinder, we're sort of cutting them at different lengths to find like. You know, just the right interval, as I said. Childhood trauma. Um, <laughs> so kind of, and then, um, and then layering that up with sort of bought wind chimes and things we did in the studio, and then my amazing um, associate, sort of uh, additional. He's got an additional sound design credit, and he also ran the pre-mix on it. Pear Carlson, who's um, another one of my colleagues at Ometa, Um he he has um, he built a kind of FFT transform algorithm in MaxMSP. so he could kind of take all these sources and do kind of interesting sort of stuff in the in the kind of FFT. Dimension and and create kind of odd sort of morphs so there was kind of a lot of a lot of stuff where we were kind of taking the source material from the script and trying to interpret it in a way that sort of took us into slightly more interesting territory
0: and was that like a back and forth conversation with Prano as well were you sort of showing her things and getting feedback or
3: yeah absolutely I mean with, with kind of key elements like the wind chime we, we were making those during the offline and so we were kind of d- sending versions and they were going into the cut and then we were kind of getting feedback back and because uh, Mark, Mark's really handy with sound so we'd sort of send stems and then he kind of do his thing on it and then kind of send it back and we were doing things like sort of you know, sending extreme, lightly pitch shifted versions of the wind chimes, which she then used as a kind of rumble in another scene. Mm. So it was really it was really nice to work with these core collaborators outside of the sound department who were so engaged with sound. I mean, Prano studied sound and you know, she she used to work with Jamie Roden, actually the who mixed the film. You know, she was a runner and kind of got on well with him, so it was kind of a nice kind of squaring of the of the circle, if you like. I uh, didn't realise they kind of knew each other yeah. before. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of partly how we got him involved. Ah. Um, I mean, he was a joy to work with, but um, but yeah, so Prano's always had that that in her, and and Mark works on a lot of horror, and you know, as we all know, sound is such a key element to to horror success. So I think yeah, it was really it was really inspiring working with people who who, who really cared passionately about how the sound was working and were really open to um to kind of some quite strange ideas.
2: Yeah, I mean, I was going to say like I found Prano just a breath of fresh air, really, in a way because she was just so open to just trying lots of different things and there was sort of some ADR lines that she you know wasn't sure about and so uh, due to COVID I I was work, you know I work remotely anyway but um, there was a time wasn't there, I can't remember Tim even when it was maybe after the dialogue premix or during where I went in and sat with Prano and met her and just we just really went through everything with a fine tooth comb and there was things that she wasn't happy about and so I went off and twiddled with them and changed things and you know and, and did something else and she was like, Oh, right, that's better and you know, but she was just really open to it and really she was aware of it happening, whereas some directors don't want that to happen or don't let that happen or you know, whatever it may be, but she was just very interested in every aspect of the soundtrack, the breaths, the dialogue, the archive you know everything and it all did something for her and it all meant something and it had a purpose and I think I found that really encouraging and really inspiring actually to work with I think yeah I can imagine
0: so when when was that happening in the process for you Adele was that sort of right the way through as as well or was that closer to the final mix
2: i'm trying to sort of remember i mean we had big shout out to ruth knight as well she was our amazing dialogue assistant she there was a lot of sort of back and forth wasn't there like me sending ruth stuff ruth would send it back to me i would then send it to prano but sometimes that just sending just takes so much longer than sitting in a room (laughs) you know with someone like michelle was saying you know there's nothing you can't deny that being sat next to a director going actually let's just move it three frames earlier and that would be better is much quicker and effective (laughs) than sending bounces back and forth you know Mm. so i think it was sort of during dialogue premix definitely before final we probably changed a few things in the final tim didn't we but not too much because everything had been so gone through before the final i think
3: yeah, we had we had a kind of di- a, a dialogue day where yeah, you, you came in with Mark, editor, and Emily, composer, and and that was really that was really nice to kind of again to bring sort of people into the same room. And yeah, we were mixing up Point one post, so you know a, fa- a fairly big theatre we could we could spread out and, and keep to COVID restrictions. And yeah, I mean I think throughout Prano had her style as a director is very much about sort of bringing people together. So you know one one of the things we were talking about during script development was the idea of a kind of a sound world, because, you know, we talked about the kind of different sound worlds, so we had this idea of the kind of creeping fiction, which creeps into the reality, which we kind of looked at with sort of analogue artefacts and the kind of materiality of VHS and that kind of thing. And then we also talked about this idea of the kind of shadow world, so we were kind of thinking about the sort of psyche of Enid and how these elements from her past are kind of always bubbling under the surface and they're kind of coming out, but she's not really acknowledging the sort of the darkness in herself, the kind of Jungian idea of the shadow, like the, um, the, ne- the negative aspects of the self that, you, that you're, you're unwilling to accept. You know, there's that scene later on where she's talking to uh, Frederick North, the kind of director of the nasties within the film, where she's, she's refusing to accept that she has any, you know, anything bad in her. So we kind of thought it'd be nice to have a sound motif that would um, attract this idea, this kind of shadow self that initially the audience are a little bit aware of. And then as things kind of come apart, like Neve sort of has to confront it. And actually, this is so we talked about the idea of these kind of objects in the film would having a kind of shadow self that would sort of come out in these moments and these kind of motifs that would sort of take the audience into these the more kind of subconscious elements of of, of Enid. And this is actually something then figured in her conversations with Neve Algar, who who plays Enid. Uh, and so I, you know, I thought I was kind of crazy. The, the director and the lead act, uh, actor would be talking about something the sound designer had had a conversation with them the day before. <laughs> but that's the kind of signature of Prano that she wants everyone to share in the. Uh, the potential of what the story can be and, and bring their own experience to it. And I think the film is much richer because of that approach.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's such a great thing to hear. That that collaborative approach, you end up with a better product, don't you? Always, when, when everyone's kind of bouncing ideas around and, and inspiring each other. Do you want to talk about, because um, obviously the film is set in a very specific time and location... And I know you said that the kind of high-res start when her psyche is intact. How did you approach kind of combining that with setting it in that period of time and in that location?
3: Yeah, I mean, this... this Because I think we we had a lot of conversations when we were talking about the music, because... Prana was quite. Um, she, she wanted some of my input on the composer to choose, and so we talked a lot initially about what would work best for the story. Because obviously, one way to go would be the whole thing's a kind of John Carpenter homage, and that's quite uh, fashionable in in horror these days, even for films that aren't set in the '80s. So I think there was always a sense that we didn't really want to do that with the soundtrack as a whole. That it, it wasn't to be sort of pastiche, and we and we weren't trying to pretend. That even if the image, um, you, know, had the, or, you know, the production design, the amazing production design, which very much um, captures the, the era. Although a kind of rather than the sort of neon day glow kind of effects of Stranger Things, more the sort of grim sort of Thatcher's Britain, the drabness of it. So there was a sense in which we, yeah, we didn't want to lean too much on obvious cultural reference points of the 80s with the music and the sound. I was very keen on um, being as authentic as possible sort of in terms of the technology with the approach of the video NASIs themselves so you'd have this kind of push and pull through the whole piece where you 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 know you hear stuff off screen in the censor's office and and all of that stuff has been made kind of with sort of period um, equipment and with a kind of period Hat on, if you like, mm. um, and obviously things like you know key time period specific sounds like sirens. Um, you know, we we kind of had to dig into libraries and and kind of find uh, sort of contemporary recordings of of those um, bits of kit. So there was an element to which we we had to be period accurate. But for instance, with the you know there was no talk of trying to record the dialogue on Nagra's or you know kind of uh, trying to pretend that it was sort of shot in the eighties. Yeah. Um, but we did we did do things like. Um, I mean, similar to the way that um, Ad- Ad- Adele was very keen to bring Ruth in, um, who I think, is, was, is she your Amps mentee?
2: Not actually via Amps, but I do mentor her, yeah. <laughs> I mentor <laughs> her, but not via Amps. Not through the official channels. I don't know why we
3: just... <laughs> <It's like> subversive <laughs> <Yeah>. mentorship. Uh, <laughs> yeah. it's we won't mentor. tell anyone, do It could be,
2: it's, uh, yeah, I guess it doesn't have that structure anymore because we've been working together for quite a while now. But um, yeah, she's doing really well which is great. She's
3: doing, yeah, she's doing really. And we've been working with her a bit over the summer on some other horror, which has been great. But um, yeah, similar similar to the way that Adele um, brought in kind of um, key key kind of people in, in more junior roles, um, we were really keen to open up the project as much as possible to um, people starting out. For instance, with, with Nasty, I was teaching quite a lot of the time at uh, University of the Arts London, and we did Nasty as a kind of a module. So I was teaching on a course called Sound Arts and Design, and we did the whole sound design component with teams of students, and then kind of took away and, and we'd mix it ourselves. But But a lot of the creative work was done in tandem with them. And we wanted to give a little nod to that and continue the spirit of that process with Sensor. So we ran a workshop um, with a kind of focus on diversity and, cl- and inclusion to bring in a number of recent graduates to give them sort of credits on an interesting film and to give them some experience and to give them a, you know a, a paid job as well. Mm. So we did a whole day of every time there's uh, anything needs to be futzed. So there's a lot of phone calls in the film, a lot of stuff coming you know out of television screens and that kind of thing. So every bit of dialogue. Uh, that had been selected uh, and every kind of bit of music was dubbed to tape VHS and over an like a dodgy RF link to a screen. Mm. So that in the final mix, Jamie would have, as well as obviously the digital solutions like FUTSBox, he'd have these three kind of analogue uh sort of FUTS FUTSINGS. I don't know if that's a word. FUTS t- <laughs> tracks. <is> now. <laughs> <laughs> um, if he says and, and that was that was a huge amount of work, but um but with a team with a kind of large team of juniors um who were super enthusiastic and did really good work, um, we were able to kind of to realise that, even though our budget wasn't huge. Mm. So there was a real sense that, you know, where we could, we would really push elements of, you know, wherever anything, it made sense for a bit of degradation. So be it the yeah the stuff that was futzed, the stuff that was kind of in the video nasties within the film, and then the whole sort of final act, where the whole thing sort of become kind of degraded. We really pushed everything we could. And for the final act, Emily, the composer, passed over all her stems to us, And we were kind of, you know, she said, you know, have fun with them, do do whatever you like, which again, great example of how Prano had brought, you know, really fostered a a kind of trusting, collaborative environment. And so we would kind of, you know, we would push stuff really hard on reel-to-reel tape and kind of pass stuff through kind of, you know, hardware modulators and all that kind of stuff. So there was a real sense that we could, yeah, we wanted the audience to really feel that we'd gone from somewhere a bit more high res, as you say, to somewhere kind of much more grungy and i think whilst you know it wouldn't be something that anyone would pick out and notice but we just wanted it to feel kind of thicker and rawer and less toppy at the end um and sort of combining that with a sort of period accurate um spot effects as needed was kind sort of how we how we handled that
1: yeah the complete opposite to doing everything in the box which is great <laughs> um did you have any trouble finding you know the kind of period equipment any fun stories in terms of getting hold of things there's a studio I use in
3: Forest Hill called a Snorkel, which is a music studio, and I think the most modern piece of equipment in that studio is a Mac G5. So, <laughs> so I think so. It's a bit of a hit, kind of a um, a museum of um, sort of of music tech, really. So you've got, you know, a lot, there's a lot of tape-based stuff, kind of tape echoes. We had an even-tied flanger, like the original flanger that they used on sort of Alien and the original Dune, and um, a lot a lot of spring reverbs. So there was kind of that we had the kind of that stuff ready-made. I know I'm a bit of an analogue head. I do also do a lot of music composition and, and tend to try and be as analogue as possible mm. um, with that. And then we had help from people like uh, Richard Formby up in Leeds, who, who I work with quite a lot on music mixes. So for, for where you have... Um, at the end, where you have this kind of apparition of a kind of angelic figure, we sent all the dialogue to Richard, Richard Formby, um who passed it all through his um, EMT one forty plate. and then that was something we could kind of bring back. And he kind of sent it to us all, you know, all the different with all the different settings. So it was kind of nice just to kind of you know, you have a sort of a little um, collaborative culture of of analog heads who are kind of very happy to uh, pass things through. We also built quite a lot of things, as well as the wind chimes. Uh, we built a thing we call the fifty meter wire. Which is basically like fifty meters of piano wire, coiled sort of loosely, uh, in a kind of amorphous shape, and then we placed contact mics um, at various points along along it, and some geophones, and so they, and then you could you have a transducer at the end of one of the wires, uh, one of the ends of the wire, and you can send any sounds through it. So for a lot of the stuff in the kind of shadow world um, of kind of Enid's sort of submerged uh, psyche, we kind of could send through. Um, any sounds, mainly it was mainly non-diagetic sounds we sent through kind of drones and stuff, stuff we'd made with kind of metal instruments and that kind of thing. And then we could kind of pick up the sound as it goes, travels through the wire at different points. So you could either make a kind of 5.1 sort of version of the original sound, or you could do things like transition between the different mics to create a sense of movement. And that kind of sort of the sort of building element of it has, has always been something that's really interested me. Got a bit of a background in stop frame animation, so this whole idea that you kind of find a way to do it with available things, and the result might be quite lo-fi. But obviously here, this is kind of what we wanted. So yeah, there was a big. It was just a chance to kind of really try and be um, as creative as we could with um, the materials that we had.
0: Yeah, brilliant. Obviously, that, as you say, the film really supports it <laughs> yeah. in the like aesthetic and and in that uncertainty that runs through the film in terms of where we are. Yeah, I don't Um, think
1: it's going to trouble the next to Austin adaptation. uh, (laughs) (laughs) No, but it's also I'm sure because it's Prano's debut feature, right? So I'm sure in terms of budget and time, official time, you were quite constrained. (laughs) But it just shows, you know, how much extra time you've spent just for the kind of satisfaction to experiment, to kind of create and, and try different things. And it's the story of your soundtrack trying to tell the story of the film. The more we talk about these kind of processes on the podcast, it's kind of become i'm finding it more and more interesting hearing people talk about their story of making the soundtrack
0: individual rabbit holes yeah
1: yeah, yeah, and the things that you'll that you'll try that you know may may not even come through in the mix may not even be used, but
3: yeah, and I think there's you know and i think I think the same is true you know, there's always an element of trial and error in everything that we do, you know be it kind of finding the right a d r take that really sells the characterization we're going for or. A process out to create some kind of crazy psychological sound but i think that yeah what you've just described is something i kind of really feel like certainly with the designers i know and talk to and a lot of people in the industry who who i speak to that there's more of a sense that you know sound is no longer seen as a you know it's not a service Mm. um it's not you know it's not technicians it's people with their own kind of creative practice and people who who are often artists in their own right and do their own things as well and and there's a real for me there's a real porous interaction between what i do as a musician and what i do as a sound designer and so it's really nice to have those two things talk to each other and yeah and obviously like you say the the budgets are often really tight but something that you build for this film is maybe something you use on your next record or so there's kind of it's not really a, a sort of part of a wider story mm. like
1: you say and you learn something on every job right how got? How long did you guys have in terms of mix time?
2: About five minutes, wasn't
3: it? <laughs> <laughs> Spend um, more time on
0: this how podcast. Long was it?
3: <laughs> so we had uh, we had ten days final at point one. So we we always knew we wanted to have a good amount of time with with Jamie um Rodin at the at the ba- at the sort of back end of the process. And then we had Pear did most most of the premix himself. I and mean, we basically we couldn't afford Jamie to do the pre mix, mm. which I, which isn't uh, isn't a particularly standard way. And Jamie was very, I mean also Jamie was only available for the very like those those 10 days. So it kind of worked out for him. But um so Pear, Carlson my colleague did all of the pre mix and he also did the um music one mix. Someone else did the stereo mix but he so we did all that in Whitechapel. I think he had six weeks for that whole process of pre-mixing. Um, and so we just sort of do, you know did it as you expect sort of dialogues first, and then brought in the sound effects, and they brought in the music, and Emily and Prana sat in the whole music premix, which is unusual again. But because it was a very creative process, it sort of made sense. But then when we handed over to Jamie, it, it was a little bit you know those kind of first day where it's just trying to you know, the translation of one person's sort of workflow. Because Jeremy had been like, bless he'd been like, oh, yeah, however you want to do it, it's fine. Um, <laughs> and Because he's very generous, he's a very generous, spirited man here, anyone who knows him you know, will, will, will know what I mean. But the first day was a little bit hairy with kind of just trying to figure out how we would get sort of what we were presenting into sort of how it kind of made sense for him yeah. to move fast. Because yeah. 10 days in the theatre, I mean, depending on where you're looking at, it might be seen as generous, might be seen as quite tight. But um, by the time that Adele and Mark and Emily came in, which I think was on day eight, Mm. it all, you know, and we hadn't even had a chance to listen back to the whole thing, but Jamie's instincts had just, and, you know, I think he was, he went not me saying, he was quite nervous about how it would play because we hadn't had a chance to to sit back and and listen to the whole thing. We'd just done one reel after the other. And then we pressed play. You all came in with your fresh perspectives and it was just a really joyful screening. I mean, I don't know how you experienced it, Adele.
2: Oh, he, I mean, you know, Jamie's a fantastic, amazing mixer and he just did a great job of of getting the best out of everything and bringing it all together and it is always nerve-wracking isn't it when you sort of hit play and (laughs) and trying to see if everything does work together but it, it did I mean I we didn't really have that many notes as far as I can remember um a few tweaks here and there and then yeah you had I guess two days after that to finish but um I think prano at that point was quite happy There were more sort of i feel like on some of the notes were they were either really really small or a much bigger brush stroke hmm. sorry you can't see this on a podcast but i'm waving my like, <laughs> arm around <the laughs> brush you, stroke Dale. but <laughs> yeah I, I don't feel like there were any major things that happened on that day eight of the the final Mm. and it sounded great in that room as well didn't it
1: yeah
3: and again shout out to adam daniel who you know who runs a really lovely space there with his dad and it was um yeah made us feel so welcome and it kind of continued the whole Sort of, there was very much a family feel uh, through the whole process. You know, I know obviously times of kind of anxiety and, t- and times of of, um, of difficulty, but there was a real sense that everyone was there pulling in the same direction, and that very much continued through to the mix. And um yeah, we had this kind of final two days just to really finesse and feel really comfortable uh, with where we were at. So yeah, it was a really, it was a really sort of pleasant mix experience in the end.
0: On that subject of viewing it as a whole and kind of screening it as a whole, there's one thing that I felt aware of, at least watching the film, is that it did to me have this feeling of starting quite claustrophobic and then opening out and and that in terms of sound as well as cinematography that it felt more and more restrained in the first half and then as the character starts to explore herself more and and rigid conservative sort of presentations kind of break down then it seemed to like open out and the sound got a, a little more varied and mixed and layered to me so I was just wondering if that's just something I'm experiencing subjectively or if that was really an aspect of the shape. And were you concerned with that arc over the over the whole film that there was a kind of change?
3: Yeah, I mean definitely we there was a real sense, you know, as because there's some really smart things happening in the cinematography where there'll be a shot where you know, it's all quite monotone uh, early on. And there's a shot where they'll add a red. And from then, every every scene has a little bit of red in it. And then there'll be a shot where they add a great bit of green. And so there was a sense in which all the departments were kind of moving, even though actually the aspect ratio narrows, there was a sense in which all the departments were sort of widening up as we sort of get towards the end. And I mean, in, in the final mix we had, as well as Jamie's digital setup in the theatre, we had in the kind of room just outside, basically I brought all of my analogue kit and we had it all set up. So towards the end, almost everything's got, um, you know, kind of, i don't know four or five different layers of stuff on it um so and that was part of, i mean we, we we kind of knew we wanted to to do that so there's a scene where um frederick north who who's the sort of director within of the video nasses within the film um he's having this conversation with uh, enid where he's preparing her to kind of for her to go into um this kind of performance and he's sort of repeating these lines that she's going to have to respond to later and we just wanted as soon as we you know. We, at each, each point where we're sort of introducing this new layer of fiction where Enid's getting more and more kind of sucked into the video nasty world. You know, for instance, that dialogue, we we, we kind of ran it all through uh, this old grungy monochore spring reverb, which has this really sort of grainy sound, almost like a kind of time stretch, though it's just a spring. Mm. Even though it's dialogue, which is effectively sort of happening somewhat naturalistically, although the scene's quite, you know, heightened for her, we kind of had a sort of layer of this reverb. And then sort of Jamie would sort of add a bit of digital reverb on top of that. And then we kind of go into the next scene and that same reverb would be there, but we'd add in another layer of stuff. And then the sound, you know, the music would be more and more textured. And then for the things like for the very ending music, the um, amazing Chernobyl track by Blank Mass, we we didn't want to do, because we're kind of in full full kind of freak out sort of analog mode there. You know, we had things like, okay, well, this is a bit of source music, you know, a kind of commercial track. So how do we upmix it for the cinema mix? And obviously, you know, you can use plugins um, and sometimes that's the only practical option. But for for that, we just we kind of did loads of rounds of dubbing it onto tape and then re-digitizing it and trying running that in the surrounds, which at times can give you phasing issues, but here somehow just added this real thickness and richness to the music. And then there's a shot where kind of Enid's, it's uh, like woozy shot where Enid kind of in slow motion closes one of her eyes in this kind of moment of extreme hallucination, if you like. And we were kind of, fiddling around with the tape edges of the tape reels to create these kind of strange pitch bends. So I think your perception of that, yeah, we we literally were adding more and more layers. And I think if you looked at the mix project, you would kind of see that sort of thickening up
0: of the tracks sort of as we went, as you go through. Credit to me then. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's really interesting to hear, validating, I suppose. Um, But yeah, that came across for me, um, even sort of streaming at home on, a, on the stereo mix. And,
3: and maybe this is something that um, Michelle can talk to around, because there's also like a real claustrophobia at the beginning with your, like at the end, you're sort of bombarded with sort of the layers of abstract sound, but at the beginning, it's sort of the opposite, you're kind of bombarded with dialogue. And as you're setting up the world and setting up this idea of this kind of media overload around the media, video nasty moral panic, we had, you know, actors, rather than doing a kind of crowd session, we sort of cast Newsreader 1 with an RP voice can also do Yorkshire and can double for, like, Woman on News. it's yes,
4: and... very well organised, mm. Tim, mm. very well organised. But what was your yeah.
3: experience there of kind of having all of these characters sort of switching, you know, because we had these, these amazing kind of voice actors who come in and would just sort of reel off all of these different things. So how was the experience of um, managing that?
4: It was actually a very simple way, because usually you would have, you would get a crowd of people in and then you would just literally assign different things to them as you're going through the, through the project, Um, in this instance it was quite well organized because we could only have one person in at a time otherwise we would have been doing crowd like I have been for the last year and a bit via clean feed and so on so it was fine it was great actually and they did their screens and they did their news readers and they were able to jump from one thing to the other and brilliant yeah it's really good
2: I can't remember Tim did you so did you source the actors for that then yeah, Where so did they there, come
3: from? Yeah, there was so there was a bit of a kind of panic with trying to get... We were sort of towards the a uh, Sundance uh, submission deadline and, you know, they'd already extended it and we, we kind of had... Uh, you know, they really didn't want to send in a version of the script with sort of Prano and me and yeah. <laughs> the assistant editors kind of doing these dodgy RP accents. And mm. so there was a real sense that we had to kind of get the ADR done quickly and it was kind of all hands on deck. So I kind of worked with Helen Jones, the amazing producer to kind of just to source voice actors so we kind of got voice reels and we tried to figure out the most economical way of i mean in the same way i guess that you would do in a crowd session sort of well who can do what we kind of did it beforehand and actually i think i mean i wonder if prana would choose to do the same thing next time because it meant it gave her a lot of control over you know and she would be like okay well i really want this style of voice this is the most important element of it so let's let's anchor the casting choices around that voice and then we'll see who else can do what. So we were looking for like the longest scream because we knew we had to fill like this whole transition with like an abnormally long scream. So kind of a lot of the, year, like Michelle says, oh, yeah. everyone's sort of there, okay, now do your longest, <laughs> longest scream. It's it all coming <laughs> back now, um, Michelle? Yeah,
4: it is. All, I was like, I forgot, i put that away. <laughs> but yeah, the screaming was quite, I think those actors are like, because a couple of times they would scream, but when you go, no, I mean, really, blood curdling mm. scream, go for it. And it's funny how they get quite worried about how to do it. Mm. And it's just, you just want them to let go. But they were brilliant. Yeah, they they did a great job. And it was very well organized. I mean, I think... In the olden days or pre COVID, we would have just had six actors come in and assigned each one of them. However, we would have probably vetted them beforehand, especially if you had something quite specific in mind as far as type of voice and possibly getting some voice tapes back. So then you would have it. But this way, it was, um, I mean, it went like clockwork. Everything was literally regimented because of time and budget and also COVID. So COVID is actually maybe a constraint, but actually helped us work. Perhaps more efficiently in some ways. Yeah, sure. So yeah, my hats off to you, Tim and Prano for organising it the way you did. It was great. It just went really well. I and mean, it was I a pleasure one...
3: to have Nick Nick Baldock on board as well. Oh, Art for noise, who's awesome. just such a yeah, yeah a joyful yeah, collaborator. A yeah. Yeah,
2: excellent. One thing I don't know, I hearing you talk to and Michelle was that like the whole film has a real sort of physicality to it. You know, you, you talk about, like, all this sort of analogue stuff and it's it's not sitting in a chair looking at a computer. It's bending down and feeding tape and doing all this and, and like, getting the actors to really scream and, you know, move and scream and, you know, it's quite um, rare. Maybe it might be a strong word, but you don't often get that, do you, in a drama or a horror, you know, and I think that's what I really found great about working... With everyone was that everyone just brought their own spin on things and it was just a lot more kind of exciting and physical yeah, yeah. you do
4: have a little bit more freedom in a funny way with a horror film mm. it, it's a weird thing because you're actually pushing the boundaries a bit more and trying to make it believable even though it's so unbelievable and that's what's that's what's so brilliant about it so making somebody really properly scream blood curdling you mean it you're horrified <laughs> you know
3: And I think that that physicality and the kind of getting away from the computer opens up a whole world of kind of happy accidents. Mm. Yeah, sure. So the things like we had, um, so one of the kind of sort of, I guess, reverb standards we used uh, although this wasn't at the final mix this was this could be been a bit too impractical to bring but it, at the at Snorkel, the music studio I, I use um we have a kind of the the sort of innards of an upright piano in the corridor so you've got this kind of basically just a box of strings and we would kind of run sound through it using a transducer and then pick up um the results using contact mics and there was a moment when I just put the kettle on to make a cup of tea which is not far away at all from this box And just had my headphones on still, and it was still in record arm mode, and I just heard the kettle like coming through the strings, (laughs) and I was like, okay, I think because there's a moment in the film where Enid puts the kettle on, and it it transitions us into a dream Uh. (laughs) uh, or a memory. So it was, and then so that's what we ended up using. We kind of start with the sort of I think the sink of the kettle or a kettle that uh, Sam Mason or Seb Bruin, the SFX uh, editors, cut in. And then it kind of transitions into this sort of 5-1 content mic recording of this real kettle kind of coming through the sounds of the piano strings. I don't think I would have found anything as interesting if I'd just gone, okay, well, what plug-in am I going to put on? But th- then that said, there are also happy accidents in the mix. Another moment of transition where Enid is kind of half asleep on the sofa with the TV on, and it's kind of just blaring white noise, so static. And um, she's breathing, and as Michelle said, we I mean, basically covered the whole film in with <laughs> breath, some from the, the, the actor, some from... Ruth. They come out and uh, done a yeah. few. Yeah, yeah, there yeah. was. Prana said she didn't want any of her breaths in the film because she normally <laughs> ends up having to stand in for the lead but um, on this occasion. And then somehow, at just the right moment for transition, like a long digital reverb, automation was just up. And so suddenly it went from a sort of close, you know, feeling breath on the sofa in in the room to like a very strange breath and Prana went, oh, that sounds great, that's cool. And suddenly it sort of, it becomes like her breath is being sort of taken over to the other side and sort of played back through the screen or or coming coming through this beast man character who's this sort of bogeyman who features in the video nasties. And that was just something, yeah, we sort of worked the transition a bit and then it kind of stuck. So I think that, yeah, being, being open to those um, creative possibilities is, is, is always good, but certainly when you're kind of getting your hands dirty in the kind of physical world, I think that it encourages them more.
2: But credit to you, Tim, for enabling that you know and i think that's all down to you and your the way you work with equipment and and how you design sound and i don't think it would have happened without you
3: <laughs> it's all the machines <laughs> Adele, I'm no, just stumbling
2: around machine. waiting for accidents.
4: <laughs> <so. laughs> putting the kettle on yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. i mean you know it's great i love it the yeah.
0: film was filtering into your world tim just as a uh, for Enid and the in the oh, video yeah. no, we world. could
3: tell you some stories about that but maybe not on air
0: <laughs> sure <laughs> i had one of the actually which i think maybe adr or dialogue i'm not sure you you tell me but we're talking about screams and reactions and one of the featured reactions in the film is a kind of wail that the mother makes i think first in a dream sequence maybe both times and it felt very deliberate and it felt like something that was maybe a callback to a video nasty kind of aesthetic, so I was just wondering if that was something that was part of the production, or if that was one of those things that Prano picked up in ADR as a performance note.
3: I think it was from the sync sound, and it was something that Mark put in. It's sort of when the mother's in the distance, and I think it was something where he just kind of found an alt. And they did a lot of alt digging as part of their process. Certainly, I found that they were quite open to things being offered up. But that element in particular kind of came as something that they had yeah they had figured out on the offline
2: yeah I don't remember laying that in so like you said Tim that must have come from the edit but um yeah I mean obviously we were trying to salvage as much sync as possible for performance and budget reasons so I think they did a lot of digging and also I did quite a lot of digging in the rushes to just try and find extra bits and stuff color code them so that Prana would know that I had done it I think technically that was quite hard because we couldn't conform could we there were sort of issues with metadata so that was why Ruth was brought in to help me get the AAF into shape and find so it wasn't like a normal put it through Kraken and get all the field recorder tracks it was a lot more difficult than that
3: yeah there were a lot of gremlins in the workflow (laughs) Um, on picture side as well I mean I don't think you know it wasn't the kind of obvious mistakes that happened on production no one could really work out what happened but it was like yeah Enid's shadow was sort of (laughs) (laughs) kind of uh, penetrating the uh, time code systems. Yeah, oh God. Uh,
1: Were there any other particular challenges that any of you can remember having to deal with?
3: Uh, I think for me, the main challenge was trying to balance the ambition levels of myself and Prano and everyone on the team with the sort of practicality. Mm. So it's kind of, you know, changing between, if you like the sound designer and supervising sound as a hat, although I know those, those terms are, you know, quite quite blurred in many ways, but it was sort of going from, okay, well, we, you know, we really want to craft every moment of this film, but we are going to have to make some compromises. So I'd taken a break from long form just to kind of focus on my own projects. And, you know, and I was still doing a lot of commercials during the time, which is some of the bread and butter work we do at Meta. And so you kind of work on these you know often quite interesting sort of arty sort of surreal commercials particularly with a director ian Pons jewel who's a, who's an old friend and who also works in film but in those moments you'd have you know almost the same budget we had for censor to do a one minute hmm. film
1: yeah sure. <laughs> <laughs> sure.
3: um and then she's trying to scale and then you you really can craft every millisecond almost uh, and, and you can and you can kind of cope with a lot of people focusing on every moment and i think that To try and obviously, you know, it's not practical to work in the same way, and and there's lots of ways that are much more efficient in in how we work in film, and we don't have the same luxuries. But how do we achieve the same level of exploration and experimentation that we can do on something like that with the same amount of resources but scaled up sort of 84 times or whatever it is? To some extent, you're always going to run out of road, but it's making sure that by the time you do, everyone feels like they've been able to authentically bring themselves to it. That for me was a challenge to make sure we would kind of get over the line with us all feeling like we had really given. Everything we wanted to bring to it,
1: and is there anyone else um, you guys would like to give a shout out to? And we've worked on this. You've mentioned quite a few people so far, but anyone else who comes to mind?
2: Yeah, I'd also say Justin Dolby, who cut the ADR. He did a great job.
3: Yeah, there was so there was um, Chase Coley, who's credited as sound effects performer, um, which is a slightly vague title, but um, we can <laughs> really put what he actually did in, in on the credits. But he he's an instrument maker, and he builds a lot of waterphones and sort of metal things like friction harps, these big metal kind of instruments. And he brought his steel cello into our studio, which is a kind of big, almost like a giant thunder sheet, sort of curved thing that's suspended from the ceiling and that you can then bow and we recorded with Sankin co 100ks um at 384k because they're rated up to 100k but they go a bit higher so you can kind of pitch them down by eight octaves and without losing much clarity so he and he kind of just improvised for a day and we got all this amazing stuff that you know pitched down kind of plays for these kind of drones which formed a big part of the kind of shadow world of, of Enid. so without his amazing talents as a, a builder of instruments and a, a performer we wouldn't have had a, a lot of the sense of that And then um, a former colleague, Paul Richardson, who spent some nights out in a forest near Bristol, terrified of his surroundings, no doubt. I don't know if anyone's ever tried to record sound in forests at night, but it's... it's, (laughs) quite an unnerving experience so he went out and recorded loads of surround atmos because i mean it wasn't really practical to do it around london because of traffic mm. so he went kind of out sort of sort of into somerset to um to record that so we really appreciated yeah his work and then my amazing year, amazing team on the sound effects yeah Seb bruin and sam mason who who worked so hard to kind of bring the sort of the more concrete um world of um of, of the sensor to life
1: brilliant
0: yeah that is brilliant so thanks to all of them and thanks to you all as well michelle Adele, and tim it's really incredible to hear so much insight into, well, a film I just watched this afternoon. But <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people have enjoyed and, and, yeah, it's done obviously some great things for sound exploration.
2: There is, sorry, one more shout out actually. Um, yeah. Tim, haven't you just written a book? I have
3: um, indeed. Well, I, I actually was finishing up at the same <laughs> time as doing Sensor, which is, well, I would never recommend anyone tries to supervise a feature and finish a book at the same time. Um, but, yes, it's out, it's out now on the Crowwood Press. It's got the snappy title of a sound design for film. And it's sort of based on my, yeah, obviously my experiences in the industry, but also my, I've been teaching sort of film sound for fifteen years, so it's sort of a kind of a, a kind of culmination of, of that sort of educational practice into a, a kind of a a practical sort of narrative guide to um, telling stories with sound.
0: Great, congratulations, Tim. Yeah, yeah we'll keep it up for that.
3: Very well done.
0: So, thanks very much to Tim, Adele, and Michelle for all their really fascinating insights on their work on the film sensor. And congratulations once again for the Biffa nomination for Best Sound. Best of luck for a win on that one. Yeah, we hope you all enjoyed
1: that discussion. Um, It was fascinating listening to them talk about how involved Prano was and the collaboration between director and sound team and how early Tim started on the project, all the experimentations they went through with a real kind of clear um, idea for... um, representing the themes in the film, in the soundtrack and, and, and everything that went along with that. Really interesting and hopefully some relationships that will keep working as, as Prano develops in the industry.
0: Yeah, uh, we'd also like to say thanks again to Bubble Bee Industries for providing us with uh, a sample of their latest Windkill SE windshield solution, which we're now using to record in a uh, Woodland near Bristol on my sony pcm d100 handheld recorder uh so not so much wind in this location but appropriately atmospheric for a podcast about a horror film
1: yeah we are actually stood in the dark (laughs) in the woods looking like two creepy men
0: hearing very little wind
1: (laughs) (laughs) all in the name of the amps podcast Um, but if you have any ideas for the podcast you'd like us to uh, think about or like us to discuss then please get in touch Uh, you can get us on Twitter at Amps Podcast um, or by email at ampspodcast at gmail.com and Amps is open to membership for those working in the industry or those studying and wanting to enter the industry
0: so for more information on that you can look at amps.net Yeah, we'll look forward to hearing from you We'll seeing you at the next Amps event and join us for the next Amps podcast Ta-ta for now Are you looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? Well, we're part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.